Most merciful God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. What grace you have shown to a people who were once not your people. You've given us life and have given it to us abundantly in Christ Jesus. You've redeemed us from the captivity of sin and set us free. And how grateful we are that you have done this for us. Yet day by day, week by week, we still fall into sin. We still disobey your word and grievously sin against you in thought, word, and deed. In things we have done outwardly, but also in our secret thoughts and desires, of which are known only to you. We've not kept your word this week, Lord, and have fallen short of your glory. So in your mercy, forgive us, cleanse us, and turn our hearts to you, O Lord, and Selah. Lord, your word tells us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Lord, hear our prayer and confession and grant us forgiveness and deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. There is salvation. No other religion, no other God, no other man can genuinely offer true salvation. Only Christ Jesus brings God and man together. He alone is the true mediator. Christ Jesus lived a sinless life, yet became sin for us. Christ Jesus conquered the great enemy at the cross, yet did so by being crucified. This is not something that you have done, nor is it something you can do. But it is something that God has brought you into. You have been united to and with Christ in his death. And because of what he has done, you now live with him in peace. You now have the salvation he purchased with his blood. You now have the deliverance from sin and death because of his work. You now have been, de been declared right with God. And yet the righteousness that you now wear is not your robe of glory. It is his. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sin, God promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. Hallelujah. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. God's word to us this morning begins in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. Beginning in verse 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he said to the disciples, The days shall come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. For just as the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But, the first, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. 
They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let not the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house go down to take them away. And likewise, let not the one who is in the field turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life shall lose it, and whoever loses his life shall preserve it. I tell you, on that night there will be two men in one bed, one will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place, one will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also will, be, will the vultures be gathered. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect, who cry to him day and night, and he will, uh, he will delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood in praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. We'll turn now to Galatians chapter 2, in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, are, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. 
But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Now please turn to the back of your bulletin. And we'll read Psalm 106 together as a congregation. Psalm 106. Praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Then they yoked themselves to the bale of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. But they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Talk about justification by faith. Tomorrow is All Saints Day on the church calendar. We're going to give a head nod to it by singing for all the saints at the end of the meeting. And uh, next Sunday, I will be in Portland, Oregon. Caleb will be speaking. That will be the 7th. The 14th and the 21st, we will return to justification by faith. 
The 28th of November, we will start a four-part series on the Incarnation. Caleb will be speaking on the Incarnation and the light of God in the person of Jesus. Ben will be speaking on the Incarnation and the love of God in the person of Jesus. Hyde will be speaking on the Incarnation and the life of God in the person of Jesus. And then just before Christmas, I will be speaking on the Incarnation and the laughter of God in the person of Jesus. Then the last Sunday of the month, Caleb will be speaking on who knows what, something, to get us ready for the next year. And so we will not return to Chronicles until the new year comes. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you that you call us into your room to give to us your word. Give us ears to hear. Give us minds to think and hearts to receive. And remove from us the wrong prejudices we have about what you say. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, I've invited to my house John MacArthur. John MacArthur is so dispensational, he bleeds dispensationalism. He's reformed, holds to reformed doctrine. He is so anti-charismatic, you can't hardly believe it. And he believes in credo-baptism. I've also invited to my house Chuck Swindoll. Chuck Swindoll is likewise so dispensational that he believes it. He also is credo-baptist. He uh, is a, a little more agnostic when it comes to the charismatic movement. And he is totally opposed to Calvinism. I've also invited John Piper to my house. John Piper is reformed through and through. He's a credo-baptist. He believes in historic premillennialism, so he's not dispensational. And he is praying for the gift of tongues. I've also invited R.C. Sproul. He'll have to return from heaven to make the... He is post-millennial, infant baptism, and he is the source of the reform movement across America today. I've also invited Timothy Keller. Timothy Keller is reformed through and through. I don't know his eschatology, but I'm guessing it's all millennial. He's mm, a little bit open to the charismatic movement. And he's infant Baptist. 
My wife has fixed a lavish dinner. Can they sit down and eat that with me together? That is the issue of justification by faith in the book of Galatians. There is a huge problem in the church today. A huge problem. We are like Ephesus. We are so doctrinally correct that if someone doesn't dot their I and cross their T just right, we don't want to deal with them. And so we have divided across the world into 3,800 Protestant denominations. Would you eat with a charismatic at the table? Would you eat with someone that disagrees with you on baptism at the table? Would you eat with someone who holds a different eschatology than you at the table? Would you eat with an Arminian at the table who thinks you can lose your salvation? Or would you only eat with Reformed people or quasi-Reformed people who believe in eternal security or the preservation of the saints? You can see what has happened is we've moved out into, well, this church, that church, that church, and everybody's got a little different take. And of course, everyone thinks they're right. I was listening to someone the other day, and he said, well, I know I'm not right. I'm at least 25% wrong, he said. But what I'm saying today, I'm right on that. But of course, all of us are wrong somewhere because we're human and we don't have all the truth. We just think we do. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that the truth is so elusive. I'm just saying the truth is so expansive and so infinite that even a combined group of academics cannot get it all correct. Who will you eat with? Who will you reckon that is part of the family of God? Some people are so narrow, so narrow, yet they preach justification by faith in Christ alone. And they're also like Luther and Calvin, and they preach that that faith that is in Christ alone, that faith in the end cannot be alone. It will issue in good works. And those good works come out into all kinds of things that Christians do and all kinds of things that Christians believe. And if you don't believe just the right things, I may not reckon you as a brother. Well, the doctrine of justification by faith is a wonderful doctrine. Absolutely wonderful. And uh, it's found in one place in the Gospels, a very famous place, if it's found there. Because you realize when we say justification by faith alone in Christ alone, we are 
we are using the word justification in a very narrow sense, and I think all Bible teachers know that justification, the word, it, it's just got this broad group of meanings, and uh, we're going to look a little bit at that today. But we're so used to the Reformation, and well, we should be, that whenever we see the word, we cannot think any differently. And so we miss some beautiful, necessary truth because we think, okay, here's what justification is. Justification means I believe in what Christ did for me at the cross. And uh, we're, we're very careful to say to people, well, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Well, what do you believe about Jesus? And, and you know, we're getting down to being more precise about it, and we want people to say, well, what I believe is that when Jesus went to the cross, my sins were imputed to him, and God poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross to pay for my sins and the sins of the world. And when Jesus died on the cross and paid for my sins, his righteousness, his sinlessness, he was never a sinner, his righteousness is imputed to me so that God reckons me just. Well, now, that is, I'm assuming, what you believe. And your closest proof text, your closest proof text is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. There's no other verse that says it quite like that. And uh, so this morning, I want to take you to a little different place. I don't want you to think that I'm denying what I just said. I'm not. I am saying that is not found everywhere. Turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 8. Now, it just dawned on me, uh, you know, I was thinking about, I said Luke 8, it's Luke 18, sorry about that. Thursday night we had book club and we were talking about Luke 15 and I got mixed up in my head where we were and was thinking about Luke 18 that day and so I thought we were, you know, but anyway, it just crossed my mind this morning. When you come to Luke chapter 18 and the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, you come into a scenario that is answering the question of verse 8 of chapter 18. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And so you see, that's why we read chapter 17, because 17 is setting up the whole scenario. Jesus is coming, and there's a lady who wants the judge to rule in her favor, and so a parable is given, and so we ought always to pray. 
But when Jesus comes, will he find faith on the earth? And we have a little parable that tells us about two different men. And one went home justified or vindicated. It depends on how you want to translate the word. And the other didn't. And then the next thing you have in Luke chapter 18 is you can't enter the kingdom unless you're like little children. So don't keep them away from me. And the next thing you have in chapter 18 is a rich young ruler who was told what to do and he got all sad and couldn't do it because he had a lot of money and he didn't want to give it up. So what you have is you have Pharisee who doesn't enter, tax collector who goes home justified, little children who you have to be like them to enter the kingdom, and a rich young ruler who goes home unjustified. You see, you have bookends. Will he find faith? Well, not if you're like this guy. Not if you're like this guy. Will he find faith? Yeah, if you're like this guy and these little kids. So, they go up to the temple to pray. And uh, in praying, the Pharisee is speaking to himself. That's what it tells us here. And he says, man, I thank God I'm not a swindler or an adulterer. Or, you know, I'm not like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I tithe everything I get. And in other words, he's listing off all his accomplishments. Well, according to the law in Jewish law, you only fast once a year. It's on the Day of Atonement. So he's making himself out better than the law. And then you have a tax collector, a sinner, rejected by the Pharisees, scorned upon, and he's at the temple. And of course, they can't go up to the altar. They can only be in the courtyard that can see in the front and see the altar. And there, they're talking to God. And the, the uh, tax collector, who's this big sinner, won't even, when they prayed, they lifted their eyes towards heaven like Jesus in John 17. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He was in distress beating his breast, saying, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, Jesus says, I tell you, that one went home justified. The one who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself, the very next thing in 18, like a little child, will be exalted. So there's our word. He went home justified. Now, just within the context, you can see that we're talking about sin and grace and law and forgiveness. And so it, it does have this sense of a courtroom context. And so he's declared right, not because he did right, but because he repented. Lord, be propitiated. 
be satisfied for me, the sinner. And this is that word that's picked up in Romans and in Hebrews, the word hilsterion, which is a, uh, it's translated merciful, mercy, propitiate. Depends on your translation. But what it is a reference to is the covering to the Ark of the Covenant. We know that because of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, as he describes the furniture of the tabernacle. And, and there was the Ark with its, with its gold cover and the glory cherubim hovering over the mercy seat, the place where propitiation took place. And so that is a reference then to the Day of Atonement because nothing happened at the ark or its covering except on the 10th day of the seventh month, once a year and only once a year, and it happened in the space of just a little time when the high priest went in without his glory garments with only linen garments and a censer with incense to create a cloud to hide in. And he brought in blood for himself first and he sprinkled it on the keferet, the covering, and before the ark. And he came in with blood for the people and he sprinkled it on the keferet, the covering, and before the ark. And Israel's whole religious system started over. Right then, God's wrath was satisfied. Now, in the book of Leviticus, that comes right in the center of 37 speeches, one in the center. And uh, this speech by God about the Day of Atonement has on this side over here all the uncleannesses that they go through, which were not sins, but represented sins. And on the other side, all the, uh, oh, what do you, what do you, abominations that Israel committed, particularly with respect to sexual abominations. And so right in the center of the book is, okay, what happens? How do you get rid of all that stuff? Well, we know from Hebrews, you, you don't get rid of it with animals at all, so it's just a picture, and Christ has to be, in the end, the hysterion, the covering where the blood is. He's the blood and the covering. And it wipes away all the sin of Israel for one year, some of which they repented, just like you and me, we don't know all our sin, they didn't repent of it. Some uncleannesses they did the right stuff for, some of the time they didn't even know they were unclean. And all that stuff rolls up and clings to the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so it's all dirtied up until the blood is sprinkled. And here they are at the temple, and they're praying. And God says, yeah, the blood applied on the Day of Atonement, on the covering of the ark, where God rests his feet, where he's at peace with man. It applies to the one everybody called a sinner, and it didn't apply to everyone 
to the, the one everybody called righteous. He went home, declared right. Now, did he believe in the five points of Calvinism? I doubt it. So when people come to Christ through missions, through evangelism, through a next door neighbor, they hear about what Jesus has done. Maybe they've watched it in their neighbor and they see a different lifestyle. They see a little more happiness and, and order instead of chaos. They see them doing good works. Well, now, why, why do you do this? And then you explain to them, well, this is what Jesus did for me. And they say, I want that too. And so they come to faith in Christ. Now, according to Corinthians, according to the book of Hebrews, when they come to faith, just like Adam and Eve, who were newborn in the garden, even though they're living in adult bodies, they're just little babies. They have so much learn, so much to know. And they have to choose a church to begin knowing. And the church they choose is it going to determine what they're taught. And so what's going to happen to people who actually trust Christ? Yeah. Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. And they trust that. And they know, yeah. My sin has been propitiated in the blood of Christ, on the kephoret, which is Christ. And I bear my sin no more. They might choose a church where the preacher wears garments. They might choose a church that has candles in it. Can you believe in Christ with candles in the room? Can you believe in Christ with a robe on? That kind of high churchy stuff? Can those people really be Christians? Well, of course, the answer is yes. Otherwise, who's going to determine in the end what you really have to hold to. Where can you be wrong and still trust Christ? Because I guarantee you, everybody in this room is wrong somewhere. Maybe in lots of places. Or don't even have enough knowledge to make a decision about certain things doctrinally. Or even in terms of good works. That's why it comes down to being like a little child. Who knows? I can trust that woman that breastfeeds me. That's why David said, you're my God on my mother's breast. He's making comparison between a kid that trusts 
a mother cries out for a mother, cannot articulate in words whatsoever what that is, but he knows, or she knows. So lots of people all around the world have cried out to God in Christ, and they trust God, and they have lots of wrong doctrine. Can you sit at the table and eat with them? That's the question. So, in Galatians, Galatians is just this, it, it is, uh, if, if you just breeze through it and you say, okay, yeah, justification by faith alone, Christ alone, I, I got it, I got it, you got not much of anything. Yeah, that's a basic statement. And some of us are just satisfied with just that oozy little bit, and we're not supposed to be satisfied there. There's all this stuff that Paul says, and we've got to figure out why he says it, because it's one coherent, massive argument with application for the Galatians. And the Galatians came about on Paul's first missionary journey. He and Barnabas went out, and they went to city in Antioch, and if you read Acts chapter 13, sure enough, you see that the word justification is there, but you can be justified from all your sins, which you could not be justified from. Not quite stated the way we would state it, but there it is. That's how it's written in God's Word. And Peter on the occasion sometime between Acts chapter 12 and Acts chapter 15, went down to Antioch where Paul was stationed along with Barnabas because if you recall, Barnabas went when the seed was scattered because of the persecution in connection with Stephen, the seed... You know, it's got two meanings, doesn't it? It's a planting in the ground, scattered around, making new plants. But seed also is family, family. The seed went down to Antioch, and there a church was born that was Jew and Gentile. And Peter came down, and of course, Peter had already been with Gentiles because Acts chapter 10 comes before uh, the council in Acts 15 where the controversy is discussed. And in Acts chapter 10, there's this elaborate vision for Peter to undergo to realize, oh yeah, God does not show partiality. He's not an acceptor of persons. And so this vision about what food to eat, which is all about election. We don't have time to discuss that now. So he goes down to Cornelius' house, and while he's giving the gospel, preaching, the Spirit of God falls on the people in Cornelius' house, and they begin to glorify God in tongues. <laughs> all those Jews, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. This isn't supposed to happen this way. They're amazed, amazed that Gentiles received the same gift they received. Where did they receive it? Well, they received it back in Acts chapter 2. 
Repent, therefore, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Spirit. And you work your way all the way through Acts, and sure enough, that's what happens. You get baptized in water, and then you get the Spirit. You get baptized in water, and then you get the Spirit. You get baptized in water, you get hands laid on you, then you get the Spirit. But no, 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 not at Cornelius' house. It doesn't happen that way. You get the Spirit because Jews needed a lesson. God's not God of the Jews only. He's God of the Gentiles also. And so Peter says, who can withhold the water of baptism to these upon whom the Holy Spirit has come? Now, just a pause. Just a pause. We say, Baptism is just a picture of something that happened internally. In other words, we can't really see that. It's a testimony. This is what happened. The Spirit, I trusted Christ. I have the Spirit. And so now I'm, I'm being baptized as a picture of that. Yeah, but wait a minute. Wait a minute. At Cornelius' house, the picture was more than a picture. Everybody saw it. So why did they need to be baptized in water now? They already had the Spirit. And from that, we've argued, okay, yeah, that's what happens all the time. That's not the order in Acts. That's not the implication of Acts. The implication is you get baptized in water, you get the Spirit. But Peter said, Peter said, who can refuse them the water of baptism? They didn't need a picture, did they? They saw it right out with their own eyes. They heard it with their own ears. They didn't need a picture. They didn't need a testimony. The testimony was right in front of them. Why baptize them then? I'll tell you why. Because in God's grand plan, this is how you identify family members. Baptize. Now, that doesn't mean every baptized person's a family member. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, you go out in the mission field, you go in your neighborhood, and you talk to somebody, you share a Bible study, and they come to Christ. Are they justified? Yeah, they're justified. We act like that's, you know, that's the, that's the cream of the crop. No, the cream of the crop is baptism! Why? Because now this is the way we know you're part of the family of God. You come sit at our table. You come and sit at Jesus' table, and we'll all eat together. So Peter shows up at Antioch. Paul returns from his first missionary journey somewhere in there. And uh, Peter's eating with the Gentiles. And then some Jews from James come. Now, James didn't send them. That's their statement. We're, we're from James. And when they came, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Peter quit eating with Gentiles, separated himself 
held himself aloof from the Gentiles and would only eat with Jewish people. So the church is gathered. I'm just putting it this way. It doesn't say it, but it, it's the picture. The church is gathered. And according to Peter, you have to have a table over here for Jews to eat at, and you have to have a table over here for Gentiles to eat at because they can't eat together because Jews don't eat with Gentiles. Why? Well, because of the law. Those Gentiles, they don't eat kosher food. They're idolaters. They're not all clean. And so what is Paul's argument? Paul's argument is, hey, Peter, you're making it look like God has two families. Now, do you see the problem with dispensationalism? God has two peoples of God, not one. But Paul's argument in Galatians is there's only one people of God. Who will you eat with? Turn, if you would, to Galatians chapter 2. And in verse 15, so Peter's gone off and he's eating with only Jewish people and the other Jewish people have joined him and, and just the, the kicker, even Barnabas joined him. And they move away in his, this hypocrisy. And so this is what Paul says in verse 15. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Okay, this is a way in literature of the time that Jews and Gentiles were through Jews by nature. Jews by nature. Now you could translate that Jews by birth. Because what happened at the birth of a baby boy he was circumcised on the eighth day, and what did that mean? Well, you have to go back to Genesis chapter 17. And it's stated very clearly. When he is circumcised, God says, I am his God, and he is my son. Period. Okay, so we're Jews by nature, we're God's people. But over here, these Gentiles, they're just out there in this idolatrous world doing all this kinds of wickedness, and so they're sinners. He goes on, verse 16. Nevertheless, now pay close attention to the translation. It, it's not absolutely crucial, but it's, it's, it's well, it's necessary. Uh, so I'm probably changing what you have in your Bible. I don't know what versions you're reading, so I don't know exactly. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus, 
even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by the faithfulness of Christ Jesus and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So right in the center, we've believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified. That, that's the center of it. We're not justified by the works of the law. Okay, so that, 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 that's, the, that's the, the Pharisee in Luke 18. He's saying, hey, God, I'm really acceptable to you because I, I tithe of everything I get and I fast twice a week and I'm not a swindler and I'm not an adulterer. I'm not like this tax guy over here. I'm pretty acceptable to you. Paul says, oh, we're not justified by the works of the law. But of course, this is a, a, a bit of a controversy in the church right now. You may not know it. It's not a huge controversy. What do the works of the law mean? Well, I'm going to tell you that in this section, I can't say it for everywhere in, in Galatians right now, but I'll say it for this section. It's not talking about tithing. It's not talking about fasting. It's not talking about whether you swindle or not, whether you're a thief or not. It's talking about the one thing that Galatians is concerned with, and that is circumcision. That is the work of the law. Why? Because in circumcision, you are called God's son. You can't, you can't get around it in the Old Testament. That's what it says. And Paul's saying, wait a minute, something new has come. And it's stated right up front in the epistle. When Paul says, he gave himself for us that he might deliver us or take us out of this present evil age. And at the end of the book, he says, circumcision is nothing and uncircum is nothing but a new creation. These are the bookends. They mean the same thing. So up until A.D. 70, it was what Paul called the present evil age. But when Christ came and he died, that age had a termination date on it, and it was A.D. 70. In A.D. 30, when Jesus died and rose from the dead, a new age began, which is called a new creation. That is what the word regeneration means. There are only two words, two uses of the word regeneration in the New Testament, and it's not used the way we use them. We use regeneration as God giving us new life before we even have faith. That's why we believe. You cannot find the word used that way in the New Testament. Regeneration in the New Testament is used twice, and it means a whole new creation. Where'd that start? Well, it started when the first dead man rose up, Jesus. He's a new creation, and all those in Christ are risen in him and physically will rise in him.
So Paul is saying, you've separated yourself. You'll only eat over here, and you'll only eat over here, and you're keeping this nasty division. Peter called circumcised Jews by nature versus Gentile sinners. But here's what we know, Peter. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus, a man is not declared right. A man is not said to be in the family anymore by the work of the law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. You see, in the context we're in right here in, in, in Galatians, there, it's not a law court, it's a family. We'll see that further in the middle of November when we look just at a couple of places in chapter 3 where the word seed is used. So here's what happened. Paul is giving credentials of his apostleship and apologetic in the first chapter and a half of Galatians. And he tells about going up to Jerusalem in A.D. 44 thereabouts. And he had a meeting with James and Cephas and John. And Titus came with him. And when they were up there, Titus was compelled, being a Greek, to get circumcised. Oh, Titus, we know you believe in Jesus. That's a good thing, Titus, that you believe in Jesus. But you know, you can't be a people of God unless you're circumcised. Look, Genesis chapter 17, Titus. And by the way, Titus, do you remember that you couldn't partake of Passover as a Gentile unless you first got circumcised? Do you know that, Titus? Titus, you can't be part of God's family lest you're circumcised. So they compelled him. Galatians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul said, we didn't give way for one hour. Not one hour. You come to the very end of the book. Whoops, this way for you. Come to the very end of the book, and Paul says, they want you to get circumcised so they can boast in your flesh, even though they don't keep the law. They are compelling you. But circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Verse 14 of chapter 2. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews. After all, he'd been eating with Gentiles. Now when some Jews come down, he's a little embarrassed, so he jumps back out. How is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? What does he mean there? He's not just talking about eating. He's talking about what the book's about. On the bookends, circumcision. You're a son of God by Genesis 17 if you get circumcised. I'll be his God and he'll be my son. 
That's the old evil age. That age passed in AD 70. It ran alongside the new age that started in AD 30. You and I live in the new age, which is all about new creation. And that's what Paul is trying to tell Peter. Well, of course, Peter knows all this. He's just like the rest of us. Every now and then we go a little bonkers and we're worried about what people think, so we do something really stupid. Notice what he says, verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Okay, the, the issue in front of us, just get this and then we'll quit. The issue in front of us is who will you eat with? Who can sit at my table? So we're not talking about a law court. So justification here is used, tweaking it just a little bit, used a little bit differently. And justification has, it means right in the end. That's its basic idea, right in the end. But when it's applied to Phineas, he was justified, but what Phineas got was a covenant. It means covenant. It probably means covenant in chapter 15, verse 6 of, of Genesis. You can't prove it for sure, but that's probably what it means. But all I'm trying to get you to see, we are, I have a book in my library that is 1,200 pages long. It's called Justification by Faith Alone. Colon. The doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Now, what if you trust Christ and you don't know anything about the doctrine of justification and the idea of imputation? Can you sit at the table? And the answer is yes. Because a four-year-old certainly knows who his parents are. He may not be able to tell you about the birds and the bees and how people get here and how the, come these two are his parents. He may not be able to tell you that, but he does know who they are. There's lots of people around the world and lots of people are a little mixed up in a lot of churches that trust Christ. And they are justified. Declared what? Yeah, declared right. They're part of the family of God. This section is not as easy to understand as you may think. I'm sure some of you have grappled with it, but particularly verses 17 and 18 get difficult. We want to spend more time on chapter 2 down to the end and give it a little more analysis, but I just want you to walk away with the basic here. And mind you, I am not setting aside our lovely doctrine, the Bible's lovely doctrine, that yes, Christ died for me. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 says, the one who knew no sin, he became sin, or was counted the sinner, that I might be the righteousness of God in him, that I might be counted righteous. Yes, but one has to take context in each time you use it. So justification here means counted as God's family. And once you're a family, you have a right to the table. 
And no brother or sister has the right to say, I won't sit and eat with you, which means McKinney Bible Church, we do not have the right to say to people, you cannot eat at our table. If you are in Christ, come eat with us. And I've said it before, I'll end on this. That, that was one of... There, there are big names uh, in Christian circles. I, I love lots of things about lots of them, and there are certain things about each of them I, I don't really like. And if they knew me, they'd feel the same way. Probably mostly they would like just a few things about me. They wouldn't like most things about me, but anyway. The thing about John MacArthur and the little clip that John Fossilino gave to me with R.C. Sproul and John and uh, Stephen Lawson being questioned, how can the two of you work together? How can the two? One of you is an infant baptizer, one of you is a credo baptist, one of you is dispensational, one of you is post mill. You know, they got their differences. And John MacArthur said it if Jesus accepts you, how can I say no to you? So he said, you know, in our church, John's church is a credo Baptist church. In our church, we have infant baptizers. Can they be members? Of course, because if God accepts you, how can I say no to you? This is what's so great about this justification section right here. Peter knowing that a man is not justified by circumcision, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, even we, we Jews, even we who were circumcised, even we who thought, you know, I'm God's person because I'm circumcised. No, even we have believed in Jesus that we might be justified through the faithfulness of Jesus because there's one thing we know by the works of the law particularly in this context, by circumcision in the flesh. He's going to talk about what happens in the flesh down in verse 20. By circumcision in the flesh, no man is justified. So Galatians 2 is a family passage. And brothers and sisters, we're family here. And uh, we want this family to grow. And we're not just family here. Whatever up there at that church, trust Christ. That's our family. Whatever down at that church, trust Christ. That's our family. I mean, you know, you know how families are. There are some families where you got kind of, you know, people who, oh, well, I don't want to say it. You have the same thing in the church family, you know? There's some people you just love and get along with, and then there's others who just irritate you to no good end. You just hope it's not your wife or husband. Ha <laughs> ha, that was a joke. So let's stand together and pray. Father, we want to thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us as the Son of God and gave himself for us. And we thank you that like Christ lives, 
so we live. But the life that we now live in the flesh, this resurrection life that we live in the flesh, we live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And what should ooze out of us as life is Jesus Christ. Bring that about, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.